The two-litre twin-turbo Ford Ranger promises more performance, but is it really worth the extra cash? And what, if any, downsides are there? That's next. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au, the place where Australian new car buyers save thousands off their next new cars. Hit me up on the website for that. We will roast some nuts and also have a fat cave mini tour, yes, right at the end of this report. But right now, here is the catalyzing question du jour from Gary. I have an ABN. I'm looking at buying either a 2019 3.2 litre diesel Ford Ranger XLT double cab or the 2019 2 litre diesel bi-turbo XLT double cab. Both will have the tech packs available to assist with safety etc. I'll be towing a 2700 kilogram van fully loaded with a 200 kilo ball weight. I mainly just drive and sometimes tow, like most people I guess. I will need a hard cover or canopy and steel bull bar to suit the car. Which car would you suggest and why? What price should I pay? Can you assist? With this purchase, personal preference is a huge factor when it comes to buying a new vehicle and in so many other things as well. So, so there's that. The two litre bi-turbo engine has to work a lot harder per unit capacity, of course. And when you look at its power delivery overall, I think it's fair to say that it's delivering only slightly more power than the 3.2 up to 3000 RPM, where the 3.2 peaks at 147 kilowatts. The 2-litre revs 25% higher ultimately and it delivers another 10 kilowatts when it gets there for 157 kilowatts at 3750 RPM, which is a significant increase but not an earth-shattering one. It's 7% more power, which means 7% more peak acceleration if you ever need it at any given speed if the gearbox can deliver the peak power at that speed. <gasps> so. When the 3.2 is making its peak power, it is delivering about 45.9 kilowatts per litre. And at full noise, the 2 litre is delivering about 78.5 kilowatts per litre. So, when you look at this per litre, the little engine that could, it's working about 70% harder, and that is significant. They are revving it higher, and they're pumping in more air as well, because two turbos because that's how you make small engines deliver more power. Power is proportional to revs, okay? And if you can maintain the torque production, you get more power if you just spin the engine faster. And more air equals more fuel equals more torque. And when you combine both of those things, it's like, yes. And there's no evidence whatsoever that this heavier workload on the little engine is going to lead to premature wear or failure. And frankly, you can hedge against both of those things in R&D. But it is working rather hard. And if you go that way and choose the two litre, definitely keep the services up to it and maybe change the oil more frequently than you need to, especially if you drive it in harsh conditions, which would be that harsh outback slogging, heavy towing sort of conditions. But also, counterintuitively, if you only do a bunch of short trips with a lot of cold starts, right? Because that's hard on oil as well. And if you do that hard outback slogging thing, you've got to realise that turbos are very hard on engine oil. 
So with that in mind, do not shut the engine down immediately after hauling, I don't know, some heavy boat or something way out of a river valley at 80 k's an hour. You know, you're climbing a couple of hundred metres vertically with nearly three tonnes hanging off the back of your car, plus the two tonnes-ish that the vehicle itself weighs. So this is a lot of mechanical work that you're doing, and the turbo is allowing the engine to perform and get you out of there. So my advice would be let the engine idle for a couple of minutes to dissipate effectively the heat in the turbo. Come to think of it, that's good advice for pretty much all turbocharged engines. Do not shut them down immediately after a workout. Let them idle a bit. Also on this front with the two litre twin turbo, the 10 speed auto, which is part of that powertrain package, it's likely to make for smoother delivery of tractive effort in most conditions, I'd suggest. In a sense, it's also going to amplify the additional torque at the crank in the 2.0-litre at just about all the common driving speeds as well. The extra ratios, they really just allow the engine to deliver, you know, at the Goldilocks revs for each permutation of load, demand and road speed. When I say load, okay, it's a bit of engineering speak, and I really just mean things like driving uphill or overtaking against the vehicle's own inertial resistance. And when I say demand, that's just jargon as well, and I really just mean how hard you are pressing on the accelerator. And there are those three basic variables that the designers have to take into account, right? The load, the demand, and the speed. And what they have to do is use the transmission to modify the engine revs to give you the best result you can get in the circumstances, right? So more ratios equals a better result in theory. And also this greater availability of ratios will also be better for fuel economy when you are not driving particularly hard. And this is of course evident in the official fuel tests which involve laboratory standardized, very conservative driving, or at least the simulation thereof, okay? You get 7.4 litres per 100 for the 2.0 and 8.9 for the 3.2. And if you drive them like you stole them, okay, or you sling something really heavy behind like this 2.7 tonne whatever that Gary is proposing to tow from time to time, you can expect the fuel economy to plummet and the 2 litre will be pretty much line ball with the 3.2 because it's going to be delivering about the same power output result and you don't get anything for free in thermodynamics. The 2-litre is also slightly lighter overall. It's about 33 kilos lighter, so not enough to make a real difference to the power-to-weight equation, but a bit less mass over the front axle, so you might expect the vehicle to steer a little bit better. Of course, if you sling a dirty, big, heavy bull bar on the front, you will be eroding much of that benefit. The engines themselves are pretty closely matched up to about 3,000 RPM, but the 2.0-litre twin-turbo does have a slight edge. I guess that's the bottom line. You can tell that just by looking at the peak torque figures for each engine. On the downside, I guess the 2.0-litre 10-speed powertrain is relatively unproven, and that's because it has not been deployed in the market long enough to draw any long-term reliability conclusions. The 2.0-litre was released in July of 2018, so at this point, right, right now, 15 months in, on the 2.0-litre bi-turbo Ranger Experiment, we don't really have enough data about long-term viability of that powertrain. It hasn't been a disaster yet, so that's nice. 
The 3.2 litre five-cylinder six-speed is, on the other hand, a low-stressed engine, and it has been a fairly problem-free package, I think you'd agree, around the world. So to me, the choice is like, do you really need that 256 gigabyte iPhone 11 Pro if all you do is text the boss's secretary and take <laughs> photographs of whatever? Is it nice to have? Yeah, absolutely, sure. But hardly anyone queuing up for the new iPhone actually needs one. And if it were my cash, I would be conservative about this and I'd buy the 3.2, that would be right now. And the difference in price, I guess it's about 1500 bucks, that would go a long way towards funding a hardcover and the bull bar or whatever else you wanna put on your vehicle. But you should take them both for a drive and see if you think the two litre twin turbo is significantly better for you. Because a lot of this depends on that subjectivity and how you generally drive. If you're a go with the flow kind of driver, the two litre is probably gonna be overkill in the sense that you will not be exploiting the engine's maximum performance very often if at all, but it might be important to you from a bragging rights point of view, you know, with the chaps down at the local hotel on a Friday evening. They can all go, oh mate, you got the two litre, that's friggin' awesome. That's a factor as well, sadly. Certainly the towing assignment proposed here is relatively conservative in the context of the vehicle's maximum tow capacity, but you have to remember that 2.7 tonnes is still a pretty heavy thing to have hanging out, you know, behind you routinely. The towing analysis here, right, the gross combination mass of the Ranger is 6,000 kilos. And if you take away the 2,700 kilo trailer, you get 3,300 kilos left for the ute. That's 3.3 tonnes. 3.3 minus 2,230, which is the curb weight, is 1,070 kilos. So you're going to be absolutely fine from a gross combination mass viewpoint at 2,700 kilos worth of trailer. The Ranger's maximum payload is 970 kilos for the XLT 3.2 double cab auto. The package is going to be limited by GVM. So I think we'd better lay that out. And if all this mathematics off the top is making your brain bleed and it's hard to keep up, I'm gonna put it all in the blog and I will put a link to that in the description. Towing is such an important thing for many Ute owners, it's worth going down this track. Looking at the GVM then, when you're towing, you get 970 kilos of payload available. Take off the 200 for the ball weight that Gary's talking about with his two ton, 2.7 ton trailer. You get 770 kilos of payload for the vehicle. That's the total payload minus the ball weight. And you've got to remember the ball weight is part of the GVM. And then you should take away 30 kilos for the tow bar. That's a bit of an estimate. 30 kilos for the hardcover. That's an estimate. Probably if you fit a canopy, it's going to be even heavier than that. But we'll leave it at 30 kilos. And then you take 80 kilos away for the bull bar that Gary proposes to fit. And you are left with 630 kilos of total payload, including people and their gear and the stuff you shove in the tray. That's kind of manageable, 630 kilos, but you have to look at it like this. Four people times 80 kilos a piece, that's 320 kilos, and that's gonna leave you 310 kilos max for other stuff in your ute. That's the stuff in the back, the stuff in the cab, whatever. So I think it's best to look at it like this. Moderate loads in the tray only when you are towing. 
on price, right? Car makers are doing it tough at the moment and sales are down. So I'd be negotiating heavily and expecting a discount of at least 10%. That's generally doable, but you have to know how the game is played. And frankly, this all depends on supply, demand, and dealer desperation in the moment that you are on the showroom floor. And remember, they will not fall all over themselves to give you this discount. You have to fight for it. And do not stand on their X because they will ambush you. That's how ambushes work. And they will gut you on the spot if they let you. We can certainly help you with a discount via the website. And that tends to be a little more painless than being gutted in a dealership. And since Gary has an ABN, here's a bit of a pro tip. If he's also registered for GST here in Australia, he might want to think about financing this fine new vehicle with a chattel mortgage because that will allow him to claim the GST in the first bass after the purchase. And we can help with that too. We can set up a chattel mortgage easily enough. But if you are considering doing that, I would counsel you definitely to talk to your accountant first because I'm no financial advisor and I'm not privy to Gary's or anyone else's financial circumstances in the granular detail. So I can't really comment on this and whether or not it's going to be the best option specifically for you. And you want to sort all that out before you sign on the dotted line. And now this from you. Recently I watched you doing something in your workshop and you moved your workbench using some awesome retractable casters which I've been looking for absolutely everywhere for my own workbench build to no avail. I think he means but to no avail. Where, oh where did you get them? I would love to know. I would be knockdownable feather-wise if he wasn't talking about these babies because I did fit them a couple of months ago on camera and they are so good. I've got the other three unlocked at the moment so the other three legs are off the deck but this one is locked down so you can see how stable that workbench is. It's not going anywhere, its own weight is holding it down and just one finger worth of mechanical effort. She's up off the deck and you can drag the workbench anywhere, which is really good in most workshops and certainly in this space, which is part studio and part workshop. And you need to move stuff around all the time. So that's quite nice, you know. And unlike conventional casters with brakes, all of this wobble in the caster, even with the brakes applied, mean that if you're doing some job like, I don't know, sawing or planing with some piece of workpiece in a vice then if you're sitting on braked casters, there's still all of the play inside the bearing of this caster, this side-to-side -side shunting like that, and your bench is going to move backwards and forwards. And also, the rolling is locked, but the turning of the caster is not locked when you apply the brake. So there's that as well. So they're a complete pain in the ass in my view, but these things, much better, because the transition's so easy and the lock down to the ground is so positive if you're putting in the elbow grease. They're from machineryhouse.com.au and they cost about $93.50, including GST for a set of four. The total lift capacity, if memory serves, is about 
252 kilos, which means 63 kilos on each corner. And I'd suggest 252 kilos is a pretty heavy workbench. You know, it's a quarter of a ton, isn't it? You know, so dragging that around could be interesting. And uh, mine weighs nothing like that. This is dead easy to move around. Just go to machinerywhouse.com.au. You search caster. You could do it with an O or an E, O-R or E-R. At the end, it doesn't matter. It's the first search result. And uh, I did pay for these with my own money. This is not a sponsored segment. But, you know, if you are the marketing manager of Machinery House and you are watching this fine video, I'm sure I'd be happy if your people spoke to my people because there's lots of fun stuff on your website. And uh, my garage slash studio is absolutely full of that stuff. So I'm a fan, in other words. And I'm genuinely a fan because I've dumped my own money on them. So anyway, you need a couple of uh, M6 bolts of whatever you know length to get through the legs on your workbench and uh, I use the high tensile ones the grade 8.8 ones partly because they're just manufactured better and they're not you know there's less play in the threads generally they pay a bit more attention to the bolts you don't need the shear capacity or, or anything like that with the high tensile ones they're just made better anyway I hope that's helped if uh, if you want to do that it's such a practical inclusion. I've got two workbenches, one over there and one here. The only thing I'd suggest is that if you buy a workbench that's designed to sit with casters underneath the legs, you're going to have to do something about that because you're going to lose something like, I don't know, 125, 150 millimetres of height and that's going to mess around with the ergonomics of the surface upstairs. So You'll have to extend the legs or put another top that's raised up on the bench or something in storage space underneath. But if you're thinking about doing that, I'm sure you can sort that crap out. As this guy is the grandchild of a fair if and the apple never falls far from the tree, I would rather hear from an actual honest car expert rather than an old bloke with a small pecker. I think he's talking about you, mate. I wouldn't worry about it, frankly. I think you're a fine specimen, pecker-wise. And certainly, my experience is that all the chicks are very keen on you indeed. And on the pressing subject of peckers, I often have a semi in public, and when I think about electric Jesus and all his erotically arousing electric toys, I go full articulated. Well, I rather like that. Full Articulated. I've never heard it referred to in quite that way. Yes, yes, quite. Always. Although, I would suggest one should be very careful indeed about heaving the jib around in public. You know, it's, it's an OH&S thing. You probably need some high-vis and, I don't know. Stop, go, chick. Auto expert, maybe, but too much blasphemy for me to keep watching. Well, fair enough, understood. I guess we've all got to draw the line somewhere. Anyway, Jesus walks into a motel in Missouri one day and he throws these three big nails and a hammer on the counter and he says, I wonder if you'd mind putting me up for the night. You can blame Mac Cat for that one. He sent it in, not me. I just read the prompter. Well done, Mr. Cat. Burn in hell, you friggin' blasphemer! I'll probably see you there. Heaven for the climate, and hell for the company! Except for the lawyers, obviously. I gave this video a dislike, which should please you, because it appears your spanners are out of order, you know, back there. 
Please rectify and get the fat cave in proper order for next time. You mean, uh, you mean those spanners? Well, let us sort this out right now, this pressing issue. I do so like to trigger people with this and that, but I'd have to say that this is completely accidental. See, it's just a trick of the light. Back there, when you're looking at me this way, I just blur the background off using a lens with a really wide aperture, which is a favourite Hollywood trick. You know, it blurs the background and seemingly separates the subject from the background. So that's deconstructing a little part of Hollywood that you see in every movie. And when you're looking back there at blurry spanners, it makes these two distinct spanner sets here look like one big out-of-order spanner set. And I understand the concern with this, frankly, because I agree. And as I understand it, in other markets, you know, around the world, out-of-ordered spanner-ness, at least aggravated out-of-ordered spanner-ness, is a crime punishable by death. We wouldn't want that, well, at least not prematurely, right? But you can clearly see this set of spanners here, these babies, these ratchet spanners, are a completely different set from these ratchet babies just here. So that's nice, knowing that I haven't been committing a crime all of this time, and part of me wished that I had done that intentionally, just to trigger you, but, you know, one lives and learns. Anyway, not out of order, so we live to fight another day.